You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The movement lacks self-criticism and promotes totalizing explanations, more concerned with examining the soul and character of humanity than proposing meaningful reforms. In this, it is unmistakably illiberal. It masks religious zeal as secular politics. I hear echoes of Jesus Camp Scientology and even Jim Jones. As Robert J. Lifton has explained in his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, human beings can easily succumb to cults. Social justice makes use of many of the methods of totalizing ideologies. Milieu control, i.e. complete dependence on specific methods of communication. Behavioral manipulation for some greater, usually mystical or spiritual purpose. Demands for purity and confession of sin. Quote-unquote sacred science. Loaded language, and especially the prioritizing of the doctrine over the person and what Lifton calls the dispensing of existence i.e. the idea that the individual matters less than where they are placed within this existing ordering of the world. As Tom Slater has recently written, identity politics is in many ways more spiritual than material. Heretics must be ousted, blasphemies must be scrubbed, past sins must be come to terms with in some vague, undefined sense. That social justice is a religion is now surely beyond doubt. So where will it go from here? The end game will probably not be as simple as a mere fizzling out, or as dramatic as a complete balkanization of the United States, though both these are distinct possibilities. To get a clearer picture of how things might turn out, we must look to America's past. Alexander von Sternberg, The Fifth Great Awakening, Maybe Nigh. Scholar warriors and fellow travelers, yes, it is I, CJ, back for the first time in a dismayingly long time with a new episode of Dangerous History. And all I can say is I feel like I'm finally out of the belly of the whale. It was a hard year for me as it was for most people. 
As you've heard me mention on this show and various other places, my work life was just a complete disaster because of the COVID stuff and the lockdowns and all that. I kept my job and my pay stayed the same, so in that regard, I guess I'm in a better boat than a lot of people who lost jobs or businesses or whatever because of the lockdowns. But that said, it was sort of like having a massive pay cut for me, because by having all my classes online in the fall semester and then most of them online in the spring semester, that meant that basically I had to work about twice as many hours, I would estimate, as I normally would under normal circumstances with regular classes. Now, that's bad enough. That means that, you know, I'm a lot busier and more stressed and tired on a typical day and all that. But because of those stresses and because of the psychologically terrible character of what it was like to go to campus and teach a class under the COVID protocols, it was just extremely dispiriting. You know, if you were trying to create a scenario to, I don't know, do some sort of bad psychological experiment, you might do something like this. And as you may or may not have heard me mention before in various places, I'm someone who has struggled with depression off and on my entire life. It's one of many things that I pretty much lost the epigenetic lottery in regard to. And so, as you might expect, the conditions of the past year, particularly when school was in session for me, were triggering my depression really hard. Um, one of the hardest stretches in my life, and I've had several, but really hard. Now, I'm a high-functioning depressive for the most part, meaning I still, you know, do my chores and go to work and take care of my kids and whatever. But it gets harder and harder, and it was really, really grinding at me, particularly over the last couple months of this school year that just mercifully ended. And if you know anything about serious depression, you'll know that if you've suffered from it or someone close to you has, that one of the things that happens when you're really having a hard time with it is that your energy levels just get completely wrecked. And it gets to where, when it's really bad, sometimes just doing the basics of getting through the day is completely mentally and physically exhausting. Like just getting up and, you know, doing some chores and going to work and taking care of some things and whatever. And by the end of the day, you feel like you've had this extremely busy, stressful day, whether or not you actually objectively had, it feels that way. And so it really, particularly the last few months, you know, I had to let a lot of things go. And I had to focus on just simply getting through it while minimizing the damage I was taking from the situation, just to get through it, get to the end of the school year. And I did. And I was guessing based on past experience that once the school year ended, it would take me about two weeks to feel basically recovered from where I was at, particularly like March, April. And that guess was right. After about two weeks, I finally, my head cleared. I started to feel normal. The, the depths of the depression started to lift from me. And so I'm basically mostly okay now. But I was in a dark place off and on over the last year, but particularly the last few months of the school year, it was just, I was so beyond worn out from the attrition of every day being like a bad psychological experiment. So I managed to make it through without anything really terrible happening. I guess the best way I would describe it is it was sort of like having a slow motion mental breakdown where instead of it all happening super quick and abruptly in, you know, a single day, 
it was a breakdown drawn out over several months. But like I said, the good news is I'm out the far end of it, and I've got a few months off for summer, mercifully. And also some very good news. I saw an email recently that my college is already pretty much ending almost all of the COVID protocols, even for summer school, which I'm not teaching, and I haven't taught for several years. But the great part is that if they're already ending most, if not all, of the COVID protocols for summer school, then it'll be at least as good, if not even better, by the time the fall semester comes around. And so, at least as far as my work life goes, most things should be, quote-unquote, back to normal when I go back to work in August. Now, I'm sure I'll still have all the usual hassles and stresses and ups and downs of that, but compared to what I dealt with over the past year... It's a massive improvement to just be mostly back to normal. And I'm finally in a place where, at least over the summer, I'll have the available time. And since I'm out of the belly of the whale of depression, for now, I mean, it always comes back. But I'm done with this particular really bad bout of it, it seems. So, with all that, I'll be able to make Dangerous History Podcast episodes more frequently and regularly, I think at least in the immediate upcoming months. So anyway, uh, a few more random announcements before I get into the topic for today. First is, I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who, especially over the past several months, who has either become a supporter of the show or who already was, but maybe up their level of contribution. It has been a huge help to me getting through the last few months to at least know that I was doing all right as far as finances and that, you know, people valued what I do enough that even when I went kind of dormant for a while, lots of people were still willing and able to step up and help me out that way. And I do want to send a special shout out to Mike. Mike, you know who you are on Patreon. Mike not only signed up for an extremely generous monthly contribution to the DHP through Patreon, he also ordered me just a giant pile of stuff off my Amazon wish list, which several other people did as well. So thank you to all of you. But Mike in particular just went crazy ordering me stuff off the Amazon wish list. And like I said, also signed up for a very hefty monthly contribution on Patreon. So, Mike, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I did lose some people over the past couple of months. I did, you know, shed a few supporters here and there. And I'm sure at least some of them, it was because I didn't put out any new episodes for a while. So I get that. And if you did stop being a supporter for that reason, I hope that maybe you'll come back in the coming months. Next thing, I want to give a little bit of a shout and a plug to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Festival which I've gone to, I think, three times now and have spoken at. This year, it's going to be held August 12th through 16th in Gaines, Michigan, and I'll put a link to the website for the event in the show notes of this episode. Unfortunately, this year, I will not be able to attend. It's just a timing conflict. I'm just all booked up primarily with work stuff in mid-August, so there's just no way I can make it. But I do want to say to anybody listening that if you're willing and able to attend, I really, really would urge you to do so. Because it's just always a great event, wonderful people. I always have a really good time. So even though I won't be there, I want to urge you to be there if you're able to and want to. Okay, so this episode is a conversation between me and my friend, my internet friend, I guess, haven't met in person yet, Alexander Raider von Sternberg. 
who, whenever I hear his full name, I always cannot help but think that it would be the perfect alter ego for like a classic era Marvel supervillain. But anyway, he's a cool guy, really smart, thoughtful guy who does the History Impossible podcast, which is always on my short list of history podcasts that I really like and listen to and recommend to people, which I don't have a very long list of. As you may have heard me say before, I'm pretty snobby and picky when it comes to history podcasts. There's not that many that I'm a big fan of, but History Impossible is definitely on that list. And Alex wrote a really interesting, thought-provoking article that was published on Aereo Magazine Online, and I will, of course, put a link in the show notes to the article, as well as to the History Impossible website and to Alex's Twitter as well. And the title of the article is The Fifth Great Awakening May Be Nigh, and he wrote it and it was published, I think, all the way back in January, if I remember correctly. But I only was tipped off to it by Alex and read it maybe a few weeks ago. But I thought it was really good and thoughtful, and it's one of those articles that is more about provoking thought and raising questions and different perspectives and things than it is about any sort of like definitive conclusions or truth with a capital T. But what Alex does in the article is look at the woke social justice stuff that's been going on the past bunch of years through the lens of great awakenings in American history, these periodic religious revivals that seem to happen once every few generations, going all the way back to the colonial era. Anyway, it's a very interesting article, well-written, makes some very perceptive points, raises some interesting questions. And so after I read it, I immediately got back to Alex and asked him if he wanted to come on uh, my podcast to discuss it more. So that's what this conversation is all about. So anyway, with no further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Alex von Sternberg. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right. So, Alex, uh, it's great to talk to you. We've already been talking for a little while before the, the recording got rolling. But um, what I want to talk to you about was this idea of awakenings in American history. And if potentially we are in the midst of one or at least in the midst of the opening uh, stages of one or whatever in in current times and the connection of this to kind of wokeism, social justice, all that good stuff. So um, you wrote this 
this very interesting essay that was published in Aereo, I guess, back in January, I think is, is when, when that was published. So, um, but I just read it, I don't know, maybe a month ago or so, something like that. You, you tipped me off to it and I read it and I was like, Oh, this is really interesting because uh, it has a, has a nice Venn diagram, like partial overlap, but partially mm-hmm. not with some of my own thinking and my own, you know, podcasting output and whatever, particularly over the last year. Um, and I always find it really interesting to talk to someone where I've got a Venn diagram with them in terms of what we're, what we're talking about, where it's like, there's enough overlap that we're speaking the same language. We're basically on the same page, but there's also enough uh, difference in the details that we can have some interesting kind of compare and contrast and back and forth. You know, it's tough to speak to someone that has nothing in common with you on the topic you're, you're speaking on. It's also kind of boring if it's someone who's just completely a clone of you on everything and you're just, you know, echoing each other all the time. So, so anyway, let, let's go ahead and, and start at, was there anything in particular that kind of sparked the muse for you to write this article? Was there like a particular event or anything you read that kind of made you start thinking down this line enough to eventually write this essay? Well, I mean, on the one hand, it was, you know, I, I was already thinking about this stuff, but it was definitely when uh, my hometown caught fire in June of 2020, <laughs> um, Minneapolis, namely, but uh, it was it was more because uh, I I have been thinking about why I, I really was trying to interrogate why I to put my cards on the table I find pretty much all rhetoric regarding social justice at this point uh, in our current moment history we could even call it I find it pretty much all reprehensible and I hate saying that because I do think social justice matters. But I just don't think that whatever it is now is not that. And I was trying to pinpoint, why do I feel this way? Why am I so hostile towards it? I even had a moment where I I reflected. I was like, am I just a closet bigot? Do I just not want to see black people get ahead? And then I was like, okay, well, maybe, but let's, let's table that. And then I thought a little more deeply and I was like, No, what this is, is it's I'm reacting to something that feels fundamentalist to me because there was a lot of moments back in the 2000s where I had run-ins with more religious people because I am not a religious person. You know, I essentially raised myself on Christopher Hitchens in a lot of ways. So I think I was a little more of a, uh, I was a little more of a pugilist about my my anti-theism back in my early twenties than I am now, as I think is often the case with a lot of people who are not religious, but uh, regardless, I still have a sort of allergy to what feels like fundamentalism. And when, when I started to recognize totalizing explanations for, you know, unequal outcomes in our society, I started to be like, wait a minute, that can't possibly be the only answer. You can't just say that because something has an outcome that you don't like, that it's because the system that produced that outcome is bad. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, And then I started to do a little more reading and I started finding the work for, I mean, I already knew the work of Andrew Sullivan. I love Andrew Sullivan. He's a very beautiful writer and he was writing about this and he actually made a very good, uh, 
piece, I think it was a 2018, I want to say, where he was talking about America's two new religions, where he was saying that you have on the left, you have this social justice cult. And on the right, you have this, um, you could call it a Trump cult, a MAGA cult, if you will. And I think he's right, though. I think what I find less interesting about the MAGA cult is that it's just an old fashioned 20th century, 19th century, really personality cult. It's a populist cult. It's not that interesting. We've seen it a million times. This other one though, on the left is it's, it's so spiritually inclined when you're talking about things like what it was the word internalized. I kept hearing the term internalized, internalized whiteness, internalized misogyny, internalized this and that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then, of course, you have white privilege or privilege in general being invoked as a sort of cudgel, which just has the reekings of original sin on it. You're seeing all the I, I was just noticing these little things here and I was picking up on them, reading these pieces by, in my opinion, very erudite critics like Andrew Sullivan. And then I somehow missed this back in 2015. The linguist John McWhorter wrote a piece about how. He, I think he even called it anti-racism back then, which wasn't even an invoke term yet. Uh, but he talked about how anti-racism was a new was a religious movement, and he's currently working on a book that I guess is coming out in um, October. I think he's been releasing it serially on his Substack uh, called uh, well, he was calling it the Elect, but uh, I think it's now called Woke Racists, which is a clever title. Uh, and he really got me on board with the idea that, no, this isn't about not wanting black people to get ahead when you are being put off by this these fundamentalist overtones. This is about you picking up on fundamentalist overtones that ultimately talk down to black and brown people and to marginalized communities that talk down to them and reduce them to not being individuals, but to being part of some sort of monolith that are all expected to you know, behave and act or, and uh, believe the same things. I mean, you just see that, you know, you see that emblematized, I don't know if that's a word, but it's, it was made an emblem by the moment when Joe Biden said to Charlemagne, the God, if you vote for Trump and not me, you ain't black. I remember when I saw that, I was like, good old uncle Joe, he's saying the quiet part out loud. He's finally said it. And that and that and but anyway, so that's my sort of long winded way of, of sort of explaining how I came to the conclusion that what we're dealing with right now is very much a creepy racialized cult of belief that I would say has expanded much further in the wake of 2020. And it ultimately started to have the same uh, trappings of past great awakenings that I started reading about, like, and, you know, we can get into those different awakenings. Uh, but I was starting to notice that there is a lot of similarities to that, despite the fact that a lot of people in this social justice milieu are not religious explicitly. They even call themselves atheists in a lot of cases. And I just, I, I don't see atheism in something that is so spiritually inclined. I mean, it has gotten a little more explicitly Christian in some cases, like people were making a big deal out of the uh, 
white ladies washing the black ladies feet pictures that were going viral last year. But what they didn't realize is that those were both pastors. Like they were all pastors. They were Christian at that point. And I thought that was fine. It actually seemed really innocuous to me when I found out the context of that. Um, and I'm sure there's probably a similar context to this, but recently after the Chauvin verdict back in Minneapolis at George Floyd square, which I should note is only a couple blocks from where I grew up. So I know that's that, I shouldn't call it a square. It was an intersection of 38th and Chicago. I, I know that intersection very well. Uh, but at that square after the Chauvin verdict, there were some baptisms going on in these big metal tubs. And there was pictures of them. And again, I don't know the context. It might've been another situation of black pastors being treated by white pastors and vice versa. I don't know, but there is definitely a very spiritualist religious element to all of this right now. And I think that that's the best way to describe it is that it's a spiritual movement. It's not a political movement. And I think honestly, the reason why I sent you that article that I wrote is because I just listened to your civil religious civil war episode. And man, I don't, I don't know, maybe this is a chicken or egg thing, but I don't know if what we're seeing with this awakening now is part of the civil religion or if the civil religion, as you've identified it, is part of America's Christian traditions, because America's Christian traditions are way more intense than I realized. I mean, I read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, recently about the history of Christianity, where he said, I think this is like a headline from one of the reviews that said like it was, um, it's like he, it's like Tom Holland asks if the West is you know, inherently Christian. And reluctantly, he says, yes. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I don't disagree after reading that book. And I don't know about the West, quote unquote, because that's kind of a vague term. But when it comes to America, I regretfully inform people listening that I think America is in a lot of ways, ideologically a Christian nation. I, I don't like it, but I think that's what it is. And I think that has some connection to the civil religion, despite the fact a lot of the founding fathers were deists, if not straight up atheists, like there's a very Christian undercurrent. And actually, even with it, with or without the founding fathers, the people were very Christian and that's going to manifest in some way or another. So I don't know, maybe we can flesh this out a little bit more, this connection. Okay. Yeah. So the, the way I talk about it when I'm teaching particularly 18th and 19th century American history in, in my day job is I tell the students and and where where I teach um, geographically is a is a fairly kind of it's, it's like a small to mid sized town in the culturally more southern uh, culturally southern one of the more culturally southern uh, counties in Florida and and so a lot of the students in my classes are like you know deeply religious Baptists and things along those lines that you would expect in the Deep South and the way I explain to them the kind of big picture of religiosity in America is I say, there's always, you can think of it as like waves coming and going, or perhaps you could think of it as a pendulum swinging back and forth where, you know, people often want to think that it's a unidirectional trend going the same direction for, for centuries, but it's not, it goes back and forth. It ebbs and flows. And so what I say to them is throughout American history, there's always like a generation or two that are decreasingly religious 
and then it'll swing back in the next, you know, after a couple of generations, right. then people will start to rebel against that. And there'll be some sort of a religious revival kind of a wave that happens usually over the span of a decade or a couple of decades. And then gradually that'll kind of burn itself out and it'll fade. And then you'll get another, you know, couple of generations who are less religious. And there's ways you can measure this. You can look at uh, records of church attendance where such things exist and church membership. Um, you, you can look at, you know, a variety of different things to try and get some amount of an objective like are people just perceiving that there's a religious wave going on or is it really happening and and you know there's enough evidence there that i think it's pretty clear that these things you know happen and then they kind of like peak and fade out but then they come up again in a slightly different form a few generations later um and so you know the the terminology as as you identified in your essay is they, these are usually talked about uh, the the moments the the periods of revival or the awakenings right there's so for for the listener who's unfamiliar with kind of this lingo in American history, um, there's there's three great awakenings that are generally pretty non-controversial kind of right. like when they were and what they were. And then there's a it's fourth mushy. one that's a yeah. little bit more yeah. uh, the, the most. Yeah. Which more recent things are always more, you know, right. Debatable. Right. I mean, this is I run into the same thing when I'm looking at the history of American political parties and uh, political historians talk in terms of party systems and in general the further back you are in time the more people generally agree like oh yeah that's the first party right. system that's the second party system and then the closer you get to the present the more it kind yeah. of becomes debatable uh, by the experts and they're like well are we really in the sixth <laughs> party system now or the seventh party system? and it's like you know the, the more hindsight you have the easier it is to kind of clearly say boom there's a thing right so um anyway just just for the the listeners if they're unfamiliar with this so you've got what's generally called the first great awakening um, this is early to mid 18th century, 1740s is where huh? 1730s um, and 40s where it peaked, where it like became with the, um, yeah. well, the famous sermon, uh, what's well, called the sermon at the hands of an angry God is the big famous tract from that period where it actually, to be honest, um, I'm blanking on the reverend's name, but he, he's, I'm terrible with names, by the way, listeners, I'm sorry, Jonathan Edwards. Yes. Jonathan Edwards. That I believe. Okay. See, now that's a thing. I don't know. So don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Yeah, he, um, he, he was uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God was, was Jonathan that is Edwards. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the so, other, the other big star preacher of the time, I think was George Whitefield. Oh, I did. I actually didn't read about him. So that, that I'm unclear on, but I'm sure he was saying very similar stuff to Jonathan Edwards. I mean, Jonathan Edwards was, I mean, he even used the term. I think the reason why it's called the great awakening is because he used the term awaken. Because he laid out the process of how somebody, well, frankly, in the 18th century Christian fundamentalist Christian version of getting woke, he literally laid out the steps of it. And that was when I was just like, I read these steps and I was like, oh, this is the same. It's just that the, the concerns are different. The material secular concerns are different. But the steps are exactly the same of what's being expected of people today. So anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you giving the background. Yeah, sure. So so there there had been before that started, there had been a couple of generations, particularly in New England, right, which were the colonies that were founded on explicitly religious lines with explicitly religious you know, purposes that, that there had been sort of a, a decline in religiosity and increasing secularization. And then that snaps back. Um, you get a couple decades of religious revival that starts in the Northeast, but then does filter out and eventually touch the other colonies and, and even filter back to Europe a little bit. Um, and then that, that kind mm. of fades 
starting around the time of the Seven Years' War and over the course mm, of the American right. Revolution, um, that the the First Awakening kind of fades away. Although it does influence the some of the rhetoric of the American Revolution for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and and then a few generations go by, and then you get the Second Great Awakening, and this is kind of like what would you say, eighteen twenties, thirties, forties, maybe. Uh, it all kind of um, started to kick off. And this is sort of my point. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to get us derailed here, but it happened. It started to, you started to see the beginnings of it after the quote unquote year without summer, which was after the eruption of Mount Tambora in 1815, 1816 was a year without summer. Um, and uh, we can jump back to natural disasters in a bit because that, that, that's a different subject that's related. But so basically after that, you started to see a rise in that. That was also when you started to see a rise in other material concerns like inequality and political polarization and just things like that. And then you started to see a lot of people going to these revivals. Um, and mostly it was, uh, it, was, it, it was all over ultimately, but it was very concentrated in upstate New York in an area called the Burned Over District. Uh, which was a reference to uh, fire and brimstone, basically. And you had people giving, you know, basically tent revivals is where is where that came from. And you started to see a lot more of the nucleus of what we would now recognize as evangelical Christianity, the beginnings of all that. And that's also when you started to see a bit of a divergence in the concerns. I mean, this is where you started to see, and I think this is a particularly fascinating, the origins of the quote unquote black church where you see a lot of slaves who have converted to Christianity turning to Christianity to, you know, provide comfort and uh, um, solace and uh, uh, explanation for the circumstances in which they found themselves. And, uh, and I think that that kind of, you saw more extreme culminations of that with things like Nat Turner's rebellion, something that people don't necessarily realize is that Nat Turner was a, rel- a Christian extremist. He was, he was having visions and stuff. I mean, I don't know if you saw that movie of his, uh, of his rebellion, the birth of a nation, uh, which honestly, in retrospect, I kind of have positive memories of that movie. It was explicitly political, but, and also very religious. It was, uh, made by this very Christian dude. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, like it, they really did. I mean, I'm kind of glad that it was made by a Christian dude because it honestly portrayed how, and I don't mean this as an insult, but how possessed Nat Turner was with his convictions. And so basically what I'm saying is you're, you're seeing this, this transformation of what I would call Christianity finally developing its true American character with the Second Awakening. It started to become very distinct from other forms of Christianity, of specifically of um, Protestantism out there, especially in Europe. Yeah, I think the the best term to kind of describe it in in an umbrella term would be uh that it's it's pietist yes. christianity in, in a way that the first great awakening you could say was evangelical but i don't know if i would necessarily say it was pietist in the same right sort of a sense of the second and the second also as you were saying is more explicitly political the first yeah. had some political undertones and implications for sure yeah but the second is more explicitly um you know this is this is when as you were saying, abolitionism is very closely tied in. In, in my mind, one of the best things to come out of the second grade Absolutely. Is, is abolitionism. That's where right? it started. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, John and, Brown. John Brown's a great, John Brown. he's a great example of a, I almost said casualty. Well, he was a casualty in a sense of the second great awakening. He was a casualty of his own, uh, you know, convictions, I think in a lot of ways, but yes, he was 
devoutly informed by his Christianity. And that's what led to him, you know, doing what he did. I mean, and yeah, I agree with you. I mean, abolition was, you know, was one of those things that I, I don't, dare I say it, I don't think it would have become as popular or as um, firmly believed in, especially by, you know, passive whites uh, without the second great awakening. I mean, without figures like John Brown was polarizing, but, you know, figures like Frederick Douglass, he invoked, you know, the Bible a lot in his speeches and he was, um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, what I'm saying is I think that, yeah, we don't have abolition happening when it does as fast as it does without the second great awakening. One could even make the argument, even though I know there's a lot of factors that go into this, but without the second great awakening, you're less likely to maybe have the civil war when you do. I'm sure the civil war was relatively uh, in the post, no matter what we were going to do about it. But um, I, I, I defer to you on that interpretation, honestly. But uh, do, do you think actually that maybe the Second Great Awakening played a big part in making the Civil War happen when it did? Yeah, I, I definitely think so, because I, I think one of the things that it did was it increased the divergence of kind of Northern Christianity and Southern Christianity, right. which then you know, had implications for political questions and, and the issue of slavery and all that. Right. Um, and, and something that just as a side note, a lot of people don't realize if they've not studied American history much is that really at least up through the civil war, the Northeast is the most religious part of the country, not the South. And, and I don't, yeah. I don't think the South becomes the more religious part of the country. And you sort of get the concept of a Bible belt and all that until at the earliest the, during the civil war itself, if not a bit after it in kind of like the aftermath. Yeah. That, that, the impression I get is that it wasn't even really until the 20th century. You could even reliably call it a Bible belt, but I I'm not saying I know that for sure. It just, that's the impression I get though, that you don't really get that sort of crystallized sense that, Oh, this is where American Christianity resides now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's when, it's when the South, which I don't think happens until in a big way until the turn of the century, but it's, it's when the South really embraces pietism, which initially it didn't, even when the South was touched by the first and second great awakenings. Um, I think the way it manifested in the South tended to be less pietistic than in the Northeast. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, especially a lot of the concerns in the South at the time, I mean, during the second great awakening is using Christianity to justify slavery which you can do it's it's in the bible guys but at the same time and that's sort of in a way what shows the revolutionary quality of christianity as a religion is that you're able to justify and condemn slavery with the same book which is pretty crazy honestly yeah, although to be fair like all of the the great religions that have extensive you know sacred books and scriptures and whatever Usually there's so much there that you can kind of like cherry pick and right. your way. Like you can, you can pick out parts of the Quran that sound very hippie and peaceful oh, yeah. and whatever. And then obviously the parts that sound, you know, very aggressive and conquering and jihadi and whatever. Right. And the same thing is definitely true of the new and old Testament uh, as well. So, which is one, one of those, one of those tricky things about, about religions in general is that they often can be used as vehicles for different things, some of which we might like and some yeah. of which we don't. Right? Well, and that might be, and that's one reason why I kind of tended, at least with the essay I wrote, but also in general, I try to avoid talking too much about what the actual, you know, holy books say, just because I don't think they, I, I think because of that, you, because you can cherry pick so easily with that material, 
there's really not a lot of value there unless you're, you know, like a straight up expert, you know what I mean? So I just try to avoid it. Uh, but in this case, yeah, I, I think that you were seeing that starting to happen. And honestly, maybe that cherry picking helped inflame the country even further and get and push them even closer to the civil war. Because when you start having differing interpretations of the same thing, whether it's a set of facts or a religious book, you're going to start seeing a lot more conflict. I mean, I'm sure I say that and people are probably thinking of examples right now of things that are happening in the news right now. So, yeah. So just to, to kind of round out the second great awakening. Um, so this, this really gives a huge boost to the abolitionist movement. It also kind of creates the, the temperance movement as well, which I'm not as big of a fan of as abolitionists. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then just broadly speaking, it, it tends to boost the more kind of pietistic types of Christianity. It's kind of explicitly rejecting Calvinism in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, the second great awakening, I think. And, um, you know, there's, there's a boost to the more, so, some denominations start to break into subgroups. This is where I believe, uh, the more kind of pietistic Presbyterians, just to use them as, as an example, kind mm-hmm. of separate from the more traditional Presbyterians. And the same thing uh, happens with some of the other large, like Lutherans, for example, there's sort of fragmentation there. Um, and then you also get some, as, as you mentioned in the article, you get some, some brand new things that are kind of like their own new, totally new versions of Christianity. Like most, most uh, famously and influentially the Mormons, right. but also the Mil- the Millerites who eventually uh, evolve into the seventh day Adventists yes, and drop some right. of their more imminent predictions of the end of the world. Um, <laughs> Those are always but, fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always tricky. Um, if you're going to predict the end of the world is coming soon, it's best to keep it kind of vague. Yeah. You don't want to make a specific date. I mean, which has not stopped people recently. What was the most recent one? 2011 or something like that. Well, there was the 2012 um, the Mayan, thing. Mayan apocalypse. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Which... <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and and I think when the fact you mentioned the temperance movement, actually, I think is a good segue into what I should add. Yeah, you're right that the third great awakening is a little more accepted than the fourth, but that's also kind of a controversial subject with a lot of uh, like uh, historians. Like it's not agreed upon fully, but I think it's kind of hard to deny that there was not a sort of yet another religious revival. It just kind of spanned a more extensive period of time. and wasn't as obvious as the first and second great awakenings. Um, Cause the temperance movement was the big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the temperance. Yeah. Because by the time the, the third great, great awakening really gets rolling, slavery has been ended. So yeah. that's no longer the major issue it was. And it seems like the third great awakening not as many people with that are interested in like just sort of civil rights and opposing Jim Crow as were in the second great awakening, you know, involved with opposing slavery. But yeah, then, then temperance moves front and center uh, changes becomes a bit more statist and authoritarian and turns into prohibitionism, right? Which is right. You know, it's, it's a little different temperance originally was about exhorting people to voluntarily either, either moderate or stop, alcohol consumption themselves right and then it gradually morphed into i guess as as various leaders of temperance got frustrated that they weren't getting yeah. able to quit today they eventually turned to well we'll just get the state to threaten them with prison and, and yeah. that's to, to me one of the hallmarks of the third great awakening is kind of the, the second great awakening started to become explicitly political but it's the third great awakening where 
politics really becomes right in many ways the centerpiece right um and i i, I differ somewhat with the the mainstream kind of narrative on the third great awakening i'll see it dated from like the 1860s to maybe the yeah, first decade yeah. of the 20th century that to me doesn't doesn't quite add up for for a number of reasons um i i, I just don't see well, we can probably agree that it calm but do, do you think it culminates with prohibition i think that's kind of a safe sort of bet to say that it may be that like that's like the peak maybe yeah maybe I not would, the peak though i don't know I would say two things that are the the biggest legacy of the Third Great Awakening. Uh, one is alcohol prohibition, uh, and the other is co- very connected to alcohol prohibition and has a lot of overlap on the Venn diagram with it. Is um, progressivism version 1.0? The right, the, yeah. the progressivism of the turn of the century is deeply, deeply tied into the Third Great Awakening. It, it is deeply religious. Yeah. You know, if you read the writings of, of Woodrow Wilson and all the other leading progressive intellectuals, like they were not hiding it at all. They were they no. explicitly thought their version of historical progress, which they described in very kind of Hegelian terms, but they mm-hmm. also had it very deeply, you know, uh, Christian and religious and biblical that like, no, by, by uh, creating all these regulatory agencies and creating the income tax and banning alcohol and all these other things and getting into world war one, that all of these are us um, helping to implement the will of God and implement right plan. And, and many of them um, in the third great awakening were, were post-millennialists who, who mm-hmm. believe this idea that, um, which is the inverse of most mainstream Christianity today, I believe, uh, post, post-millennialism is the idea that Christ is only going to return once we here on earth prepare the way for him by creating a kingdom of God on earth, which is some kind of vague Christian utopia. Right. And, which is such a weird like offshoot of the Judaic belief of like, you know, we're waiting, we're perpetually waiting for, you know, the new Messiah to yeah, come and, along. And even you know? the, the older kind of more traditional Christian denominations, right? Like Catholicism and a lot of the more kind of like right. mainline traditional Protestant, you know, non-evangelical Protestant denominations, they, they have a view that's more um, like we just flat out don't know, right? Like that, that old cliche, you know, he'll come like a thief in the (laughs) night, right? That, that uh, none of us know when the second coming and all the stuff in revelations is going to happen. And so, you know, best thing to do is just try and be your best, be on your best behavior because you never know when it might happen versus. Which is so innocuous compared to what you're talking about with the progressive movement of the early uh, 20th century, late 19th century too, yeah. right? It was kind of like it bled over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, would, yeah. I would I would, date the, the Third Great Awakening. I would say maybe I wouldn't start it until the 1880s. And I would say it. That sounds right to I, me I too. I would say it runs into the 19 teens and sort of like the, the after effects of mm-hmm. it are, are echoing through the 20s, but it's fading in the 20s. Uh, so in a, right. in, a, in a way, passing I, prohibition it, is sort of like that's their their last big win. And, exactly, and then, that's what yeah. I meant when I said, "Is that where it culminates?" Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Well, two things. One, I, I just want to tell you, man, that my favorite thing to do now is to relate to people that story you told. I think it was in your last Woodrow Wilson episode, as of this recording, uh, where he became president. And then the lobbyist said to him, basically tried to say, hey, you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I, or I already scratch your back, help scratch my back. And he said, you didn't do anything. God may be president. Yeah. I, 
I'm he, paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. He, but he basically I just said, I don't owe you or any. And this is to a guy who was, um, I think, during the campaign had been like the head of the Democratic National Party organization or whatever. Yeah. And, and the guy was the guy was kind of a flake and whatever, based on what I know of him. He, he was a little bit of a not not the greatest. But at the same time, like, you know, politics, this guy was running your party and you got elected. You're not even going to hook him up yeah. with like a BS ambassadorship to Belgium or something yeah, like that. Exactly. And he's just like, yeah. nope, I don't owe anybody anything, says Woodrow Wilson, because God made me president. And that that to me was like yeah. right up there with George W. Bush saying God told me to invade Iraq. No, me too. I mean, I, that's that was the first thing my brain went to when I heard you say those words. I was like, oh, this is why people make those comparisons between W and uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, I, the, the, um, the funny thing is that uh, in a vacuum on the one hand, I'm kind of like, that's really badass <laughs> because it's a lot, you know, you're essentially telling a lobbyist to get fucked. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, that's also really disturbing. I don't want a president saying that God got him into the office. That's really disturbing. Yeah. And, and there is um, a sort of like an honor among thieves thing I can respect where, Woodrow Wilson was happily accepting the help of exactly. like really corrupt machine politicians and bosses and whatever. Yeah. And then, and, and they did their part. They kept their end of the bargain. Like they, they campaigned <laughs> yeah. for him and helped them win. And then he immediately throws them under the bus yeah. and says like, Nope, I'm above you. It's like, well, you weren't above taking their help. 10 seconds. Yeah. It's, it's not, I mean, and I think that that might be why there are people who like Wilson is that they see him as like this, this lobbyist destroyer or something. I'm like, I think it's a little more complicated than that guys. I get why you feel that way because lobbyists are slimy and you they're easy to hate, but like, especially now, but like, come on, let's be real. This is skeezy now, but, but okay. So the other thing I wanted to mention though, uh, I, I like that you tied it into sort of the political machine. And I, I mean, I think it's explicitly tied into the political machine when you're looking at what happened with prohibition. But um, and and here's the unfortunate thing, in my view, by the way, I don't like that prohibition and this great awakening is tied into the women's right to vote. But it nevertheless is without without these things in place, women would not have gotten the right to vote when they did, most likely, which is, you know, you know, as somebody who, you know, obviously supports women's right to vote, that kind of rubs me the wrong way when I, when I think like, what is the cost of that? But obviously prohibition was repealed in the 1930s. So, you know, no harm, no foul. But the the point that I wanted to make though, is that I think it's very interesting that this is the moment when the American Christianity becomes all the more atomized and fractured and becomes more explicitly secular in a lot of ways. Um, I actually mentioned uh, uh, an example as well of, um, I think they were called, uh, um, I actually pulled it up because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Uh, yeah, the non-denominational splinter group um, known as the uh, Chautauqua, if, I, if I'm getting the pronunciation right. Oh, they were founded by the Methodists. Ch- Chautauqua? Chautauqua. Yeah, maybe that's how you say it. But basically, that just had to do with education reform. Maybe that had some. Is, does that have any relation to the progressive education movement? Do you know? Um, I don't know that specifically. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. I, I know that 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 was more of almost like a, to some degree, like an adult self help yeah, kind of exactly. movement where they would bring in speakers to lecture right. on topic. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, in and of itself, I'm generally like a fan of of the concept of lifelong learning. And Maybe it was the beginning of self-help, though. Who knows? <laughs> I, yeah, don't, I don't yeah, honestly know. Which, but you know, again, yeah. there, there are some some good and, and negative uh, uh, versions of that. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So 
so third great awakening, I, I would say is when the South becomes pietistic in its right. Christianity for the first time that right. previously, you know, some Southerners have been evangelical, but they had, they had been more likely to be a, a quietist, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's more just about, I myself am saved. And, you know, that's kind of, yeah, yeah. whereas the, with the pietism, it's more like, no, 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 it's not enough for me or even my immediate family to all be saved. I've got to, in order to ensure my salvation, I've got to maximize the salvation of everybody right. around me, which then of course quickly translates into, and I'm going to use the state to do it. Right. And, and oftentimes can also be turned into, and it's America's God-given mission to reform and fix and Christianize the planet. Exactly. Yeah. Gets you into World War One and gets you on the path to global, you know, being the global policeman and the world empire and all that right. sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, and that's the interesting thing is that like they're, they're, when you start to get into the 20th century, that's when things get a little harder to identify. So I understand why there is a a, you know, a contentious element to talking about a fourth great awakening. But again, like you said earlier, we're not that far removed from, you know, those changes. And uh, I do think it's pretty curious that we don't really see anything after World War One, really until even a well, well after World War Two, in terms of a rise in religiosity. I know that there was a sort of like boost in church attendance in, in the post-war, post-World War Two years, but it wasn't an awakening. There was no revival going on. It just seemed like people were just going to church more from what I could tell. It doesn't seem to me that you don't really see an awakening happen until, you know, everything that happens after 1968. Um, If if, if you want to jump ahead on this, unless you had other thoughts on the third one. Yeah. Well, the the uptick in, in religiosity kind of in the fifties, yeah, is is interesting. I, I think it's. I think I would agree with you that I wouldn't characterize it as an awakening. I don't think there's the same uh, kind of revivalist, mm-hmm. emotionalist sort of context. Aside from yeah, aside from like the anti-communist, uh, the Red Scare rather, the Second Red right. Scare that has like kind of a Salem witch trials element to it, which one could argue that kind of fever in the air. Uh, fervor rather uh, led to the first great awakening. I don't know. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying you could see a parallel there. And then uh, you, but then, yeah, like after, aside from that, yeah, it wasn't particularly, you know, intense religiously rather. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think I almost see it's kind of like embodied in the personality of Dwight Eisenhower, right? Who's this very kind of like main, he's center, right? But he's like very center, you know? Yeah. Um, And and I think, I think Eisenhower said something like, um, uh, every great nation needs to believe in a religion. And I don't really care which one it is. He said, he said something like that. I forget the exact (laughs) quote where it was almost the same kind of thing you hear from a lot of the founding fathers where they had like, um, a very kind of practical idea about the social utility of religion. Not that they would be fans. I don't think Eisenhower or, you know, somebody like George Washington would be fans of like really emotional, zealous, fundamentalist religion. I I think they'd be, I think they'd be put off by it, but, but sort of like bland mainstream religion, like they're, they're the sorts of people um, who, you know, would make the argument and I'm trying to think of the guy in, in kind of modern discourse. There's at least a few people out there who sort of make this point where they'll say, yes, it's possible for individual atheists to be moral people, but mm-hmm. broader society needs some kind of like unifying ethic that only organized religion can provide, making this very utilitarian case for religion. Yeah, yeah. 
It hurts me to say, but I, I've unfortunately, I used to be just a wholeheartedly would reject that notion when I was younger. But as I've gotten older, I'm kind of like, well, I, I more phrase it as I don't think most people have it in them to be actual atheists is sort of what I is sort of where I've come to, you know, uh, sit with my with my views on atheism. I think that atheism is a skill, honestly, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of those very complicated sort of questions that I it is, I yeah. kind of continuously go back and forth in on on in my own thinking. Uh, yeah, where, you know, as a younger guy, like you were saying about yourself, and this is probably true of most people. Um, when, I, when I was first sort of like coming to terms with my atheism. It's just like when you first get converted to a new political way of exactly. thinking. Exactly, you're, you're an yeah. obnoxious jerk who who wants to <laughs> yeah. who wants to belligerently go after anyone who who doesn't see the world the way you do. And then over mm-hmm. time, hopefully, you kind of mature and mellow out. Where you're like, well, I yeah. still believe this thing. And if someone wants to talk to me about why I think this thing, I'm happy to have the conversation. But I'm not looking to aggressively like yeah. push it, you know, where it doesn't belong. Or as you get older, and I don't want to jump the gun here, you start subscribing to other beliefs and start aggressively pushing them on people as if you're a 20-year-old atheist again. That could happen. Yeah, that could that, happen. That could happen. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I see the same thing in my own thinking, roughly the parallel time in my life, too, where where I kind of um, – because I, I sort of – came to the conclusion that I was a full-blown atheist rather than just being kind of like a vague, oh, I'm, I'm agnostic or, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just not a fan of organized religion, that kind of stuff to like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm like yeah. an absolute, like, you know, not, not that I, I, I would say I'm, I'm an open-minded atheist. And then I'm like, Hey man, if you can like demonstrate to me some kind of supernatural stuff, like improve it, like I'm, sure. I'm open to it, yeah. but I'm not going to just take someone else's word for it. Um, but, but at the same right. time in my life, roughly that I was coming to that conclusion, I was also coming to the conclusion that I was a full-blown anarchist in my political thinking and so yeah it, it, to me there's a, there's a lot of parallels in both of those conclusions I mean, they're, they're both like just saying i agree done, with you on I'm that done, yeah. you know like I, yeah. I don't i don't believe in anybody's uh, religious creed and i don't believe in anybody else's uh, political creed and, and i went through the same process at the same time where i kind of mellowed into my anarchism as i was mellowing into my yeah. atheism to where now it's like and I, I think I can even hear it in my own podcast. When I listened to my earliest podcast, like I was still more of an angry atheist and anarchist. And now, <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more mellow and tolerant, uh, at least to some extent, you know, where I'm like, well, you know what, if, right. if, you, if you can believe in God and go to church, like as long as you're not a jerk about it and you're not pushing it on me when I don't want it, like I, I good for you, you know, and the same thing. With, with politics, it's a little different because politics, any ideology other than anarchism implies aggression and coercion and, and forcing your preferences <laughs> yeah, yeah. on someone else. So that's a little bit, you know, harder for me to mellow on about than religion. But still, I've mellowed somewhat to where, like, I'm not looking to uh, uh, convert the world or, or seeing it as like my mm-hmm. job to correct every person with a stupid opinion. Yeah. And to, to reference Hitchens again, uh, for for such an adversarial to use the word again, pugilist that he was, he did have a great quote that I'm going to mangle here, but to paraphrase, he said, you know, religious people can have their toys and play with their toys as much as they want. Just don't bring their toys into my house. And I'm just like, that's really the only rational viewpoint to take on this sort of thing is like, if you don't want anything to do with it, that's fine. You're not harming them. As long as they're not harming you or trying to push themselves on you, that's all that matters. And honestly, I think that there, there is a sort of point for people who are atheists or agnostic, but mostly atheist, where you mellow out, like you're saying, you either mellow out 
or you move on to something else that allows you to keep pushing things on people to keep pushing your worldview on people. And this, this is jumping ahead. We can, we can circle back to this, this question in a little bit, but throwing it out there um, now, the question of, you know, how many of these people that eventually become uh, atheist plus, right. (laughs) Which is basically saying, Oh no, it's not enough to just say, I don't believe in, in supernatural stuff and gods and whatever. Nope. You also have to adopt these 15 planks of wokeism, you know, atheist plus. It's like, and like, well, I remember, you know, Joe Rogan brought this up. I think he was the one who even, I didn't even know what atheism plus was until he referenced it on a podcast years ago. And I was like, what is this? And I looked into it and I was like, Oh yeah, this is just them trying to make atheism into a religion. What is going on here? Like that is bizarre to me, but at the same time, now that I've had some time to think about it as well as mellow out a little bit, I'm realizing, Oh no, no, no. They, they are religious. They, they don't have it in them to, you know, look into the void, if you will. I mean, I know that's really a weird way of putting it. I feel like, you know, now that I said it out loud, but that's sort of how I see it. If that makes sense. No, I think it does make sense. Have you ever read the book, the true believer by Eric Hoffer? I haven't. Um, Okay, remind well, me, I, remind me what it is, because I, 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 the name rings a bell. I think I may have either heard, either heard you talk about it or other people talk about it. it. It's a pretty famous book. I think he wrote it uh, in the 1940s, and he was an interesting guy. He was basically, as far as I know, he was like an uncredentialed autodidact. Oh wow! Who, okay, like worked blue collar jobs. He was like a longshoreman and things like that. <laughs> but meanwhile, awesome. he's like writing these brilliant books and essays with like really deep. Uh, uh, thought and research and whatever. So I, I very much appreciate that, you know, that idea of like, yeah, I work this blue collar job and in my spare time, I write these brilliant, you know, essays and whatever. And I love so that. He wrote this, this, um, you know, it's, it's either a short book or a really long essay. Um, it's under 200 pages. I'm almost done reading it for the first time, actually. Oh, okay. And, uh, That's right. Yeah. I heard you mention it, I think in a recent interview you did. And I, and I was, yeah. and I think I heard it, I heard about it somewhere else too. I think it must be, it's relatively famous, right? Yeah. It's pretty well known. Uh, I think okay. for, Hoffer really got recognized um, towards the end of his life, like in the 1980s. I, I think he started okay. to really get some like awards and, 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 and the book started to become even more popular, I guess. Right. Um, and it's one of true those believer, books, though. It's the, the true believer. It, it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I would definitely recommend like it, it's right. I think up your alley and it dovetails it yeah. with a lot of these things we're talking about and that you wrote about in that essay. It really has a, has a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, insight to add to that. And a lot of it is, is he's kind of, and you'll definitely appreciate this too. He's, he's looking at it in part through kind of a psychological lens, like who is a true believer in a mass movement? What's really driving them. And, Mm. and his answer seems to be um, that a lot of it is, is individual psychology more so than these bigger uh, social sciencey things that people often point to, which I I would say, you know, those Mm -hmm. things don't matter for sure, but but, yeah. but definitely you got to bring in it's a mosaic it's it's everything yeah, you, it's it's a lot it's multi it's multifaceted yeah sure. you got to bring in individual psychology um to some degree totally. because how else can you explain people who were like you know rabid diehard true believing nazis or rabid diehard true believing yeah. maoists or today rabid diehard true believing wokies um there's a lot of i love that term by the way wokies yeah. i just i'm using that for now i've been saying woke is stanny just because i think it's funny but i didn't make it up i wish i did but wokies is just it, it has like this cute australian feel to it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know? well, the, the wokies <laughs> I, I like that it sounds kind of 
fun and silly because to me it's like at some point it is kind of fun of, and silly. Some of the best way to respond to some of these people is like ridicule and laughing at them. And in, in some instances is the most effective uh, and, way to and respond. It is. And it's, and it's growing because I think anyone who takes himself that seriously and just, we can loop it into religion again. Like there's a reason why, uh, you know, Monty Python was so good at ridiculing the, uh, the church of England and the Catholic church. I mean, I'll never forget the first time. And this actually was way more recently than I think I should admit that I finally saw Monty Python and the meaning of life, which uh, there's that amazing musical number. Every sperm is sacred. Like that is one of the big, like best ridicules of, uh, well, I guess it's, it's more about, it's more about the making fun of the church's views on contraception and so forth. But yeah, like it's, it's or abortion and whatnot, but uh, still it's like, that's amazing. And I think that we're starting to see that grow in reaction to the Wokies, because I think at some level, explicitly or otherwise, people are realizing, okay, we're dealing with religious zealots right now. And yes, there's not that many of them who actually are zealots. The vast majority of people who support that kind of ideology are just sort of tacitly supporting it. They don't really think about it in those terms because to bring up individual psychology, it makes them feel comfort in some way. You know what I mean? I mean, if a Christian person wants to talk to me about these ideas, I actually feel like I could have way more of a productive conversation with a Christian about, you know, social justice and so forth. Not because they're more correct or anything, but it's because they're more self-aware and in tune with their motivation for supporting it. Ideally, you would think. I mean, that might be giving individuals too much credit in some cases, but I really do think that there's something to that. Yeah, well, in the the true believer, and I'm actually going to be um, talking to another friend of mine for for a podcast episode tomorrow specifically about the book the the true believer. Um, oh, nice! Since I've just read it for the first time. It's one of those books I've heard referred to a zillion times, and I've like right. I've read like quotes from it and whatever. So I was familiar with the basic idea, but this is you know finally after many years, I I was like, all right, I don't need to sit down and read this thing for real, cover mm-hmm. to cover. Um, and and the 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 overarching argument that ties the book together is basically that the the true believers who who become part of a mass movement whether that movement is religious or or political or nationalistic or whatever that the sorts of people who are drawn to those movements and like really go all in on them are people who are deeply frustrated and unhappy with themselves mm. as individuals and that mm. the mass movement provides them relief from having to stare mm. their own frustrations and inadequacies in the face because it allows mm-hmm. them to just completely surrender their individuality and, and to, mm. to abdicate all responsibility and just say, I'm a part of this movement now. And so I'm just going to believe what I'm told to believe. And, um, and he goes into great detail, by the way, too, on the importance for any mass movement of having enemies both both inside and outside oh yeah and that kind of witch hunting type Mm -hmm. stuff is always a big part of it and ideally it's great to have enemies inside and outside the movement that you can direct people towards the one of the more famous quotes from the book hoffer said something like i think he said um you can have a mass movement without a god but you can't have one without a devil something like that where it's like I've heard that yeah, quote too. It's yeah, basically like yeah. you need enemies even more than you need heroes to make a a really like cohesive, uh, powerful mass movement. So yeah, he's making a, he's making an argument that like mass movements are inherently in that sense reactionary. Yeah, 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 and and that 
it, it's always the frustrated individual, both amongst the rank and file and the leadership, who is drawn to mm-hmm. whether it's a religious cult or whether it's something like national socialism or communism or whatever. Any mm-hmm. of these like mm-hmm. really uh, strong, zealous ideology mass movements. Um, and, and he points out how many of the people, even amongst the leaders of of historical mass movements, if you look into their personal biography, they are essentially a frustrated creative. Um, especially amongst the leaders of mass movements, right? And Hitler's the most famous example, right? A failed painter. But right. if you look at the other like top-ranking Nazis, almost all of them had something like they tried to be a writer or they tried to be a composer mm-hmm. or they tried to be an artist. Um, and, and so he's, a, he's basically saying a lot of it is these are people who want to be creative geniuses and failed, and not not just that they failed like the world didn't appreciate the value of their work, which, you know, people can still get satisfaction. Like if you're a great artist ahead of your time, you know, maybe your contemporaries don't appreciate your work, but you can take solace. Like, I know what I'm doing is good. And I'm confident right. that maybe 10 years from now, maybe 50 years from now, someone's going to appreciate what I did. Whereas these people, mm-hmm. like they even know to themselves that they failed. And so yeah. then they, they, because, st- because Hitler looked at his own paintings and was like, this is not going to be better yeah. than a postcard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and so then they, they kind of like redirect and project a lot of their, their kind of self-hatred towards others, towards the enemies within and, and without right. the movement. Yeah. And see, that's why I don't really, f- I mean, I, I, one could make a good and I think a reasonable joke that, you know, Donald Trump fits that category as well because he's a failed businessman. But, uh, but I mean, I think in all seriousness, I don't even give him that much credit. I think that he was an example of somebody who recognized the power of at least behaving like that. You know, that's what populists do. And that's what he weaponized. And that's why he became successful. That's not to say there's not a lot of resentment in that man. He seems like he's full of a lot of resentment, but uh, but it's interesting to think about leaders like him or Stalin, who, as far as I know, had didn't have an artistic bone in his body. Like the most thing, the most I can think of right now with Stalin is that he was a failed seminary student, but that was by his own design. He was an atheist by the time he was in seminary. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting to look at like other leaders like that. Um, then again, I was about to say also Mao, but Mao was also he thought he was an artist, though. He's kind of interesting because he was like this deluded artist, even when he was leader. He was writing poetry and shit. So, I mean, it's 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 interesting. And I think also, you know, now I'm wondering uh, and this is just a can of worms, but I'm thinking out loud here. Maybe this uh, failed artist hypothesis applies more to Western leaders. I don't know. I um I would like to, I'd like to think it's a universal thing that would make the world a lot easier to understand, but it might be just a modern Western thing. I don't know. Yeah, and I'm not sure how Hoffer would answer that. He I think he kind of says that um that for various sort of cultural and historical reasons, until fairly recently, it's been mostly the Western world that has been prone to mass movements. And right. it, it only really right. is in like maybe the 20th century that that much of Asia starts to be at all even receptive to the possibility. You know, like you get the the, the Chinese right. revolutions and civil war and all that. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that mm-hmm. that is, you know, but but that prior to that, 
those mass movements were less likely to really take root in non-Western societies, which, you know, they, you, you could probably argue back and forth on that, that claim different ways. Cause I, I, I know you can go back into earlier eras of, of Asian history and you can find various like religious zealous movements and things like this. Um, the Taiping Rebellion comes to mind. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, that's a that's and a. And I think he actually, that's a crazy I think he island actually there, yeah. mentioned that in in True Believer briefly. So I'll okay. give him credit, like he was at least aware of that. I think, and I think he mentioned that as like sure, either yeah. an, a super early example of of that sort of stuff in Asia, or um, mm-hmm, you know something mm-hmm. along those lines. Like like it was the first right. time something like that really really kind of happened. I wanted to loop this into the historical context a little bit because you said that okay, so he wrote the book in the 1940s. You said yes. right. Yeah. Okay. So, and then you said that it saw a revival, so to speak, of uh, interest in the 1980s around thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the 80s, um, I think Ronald Reagan might have even given Hoffer uh, the presidential really? medal of freedom, if I remember right, something like that. Yeah. It basically like that's crazy. Around the time of the collapse okay. of the Iron Curtain. Also, late 80s. Yeah, I okay. Think so. That's interesting to me because because I was just thinking in terms of when the the debated Fourth Great Awakening happened. It was around the the revival of the what we now call the Bible Belt, you know, with people like Billy Graham and megachurches, the rise of megachurches, you know, the stuff that you see in uh, shows like Righteous Gemstones, you know, you see the beginning of that in like the late 70s, early 80s. And I'm wondering if maybe there's some sort of correlation between the rise in popularity of Hoffer's work and the, you know, rise in uh, you know, church attendance in the seventies and eighties, which by the way, I should just add that this is where I see the most direct parallels to today. Uh, it was all done pretty much in response to the halted social justice movement of the late sixties with all the leaders like Martin Luther King being assassinated. And then everything just sort of devolving into the radical movement of the early seventies. That was mostly just, uh, like nihilistic violence ultimately in the name of, you know, justice and so forth and i'm wondering and that's sort of what makes me wonder like where we are right now um but uh it's interesting though just to think about like what things become popular as far as writings go uh and i'm wondering if that might reflect that reality that maybe people were at some level picking up on the the rise in religiosity at that time and that's why hoffer became so popular because people were still reeling from the radical movement up into the eighties. That's why Reagan arguably did so well in the eighties is because everyone was just sick of the, you know, the, the seventies, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in my idea of the civil religious civil war, I sort of said like, there's, there's at least two, if not more than two distinct uh, denominations of American civil religion. And um, they've, right. they've got some, some real issues with each other. And I wonder if, if that kind of way of thinking about it might be mapped retroactively onto the fourth great awakening. So um, for, yeah. the, for the listeners, the, the somewhat fuzzier and much more debated fourth great awakening, I think is usually people would place it centered on the sixties and seventies, although it's effects kind of spill. Well, that's like the up into the eighties. Exactly. And 90s. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, but you started, but th- that's the thing is that like, it's hard to say because there was a sort of revivalist feeling in the Southern churches, namely with like the Pentecostals and whatnot, lots more, maybe it was just a rise in, you know, video documentation of this stuff. But this is when you start to see all those clips of people speaking in tongues. This is when you see, like I said, the rise of mega churches and the explosion of church attendance that 
I would argue is probably a result of, you know, um, everything that happened in the, in the sixties and seventies. Now, I also think that maybe it's also possible that what I'm picking up on is I'm, I'm zeroing in a little too much on that because you also saw a rise in cult membership. Our fellow podcaster, Daryl Cooper just did a epic series on Jim Jones's uh, people's temple and how that tied into the radical movement. And he made a point in one of the episodes where he said that a lot of the people who were in that diffuse radical movement that kicked off what I actually think we could maybe call the beginning of the fourth great awakening. A lot of them ended up in cults because they had nowhere else to go in the late seventies, mid late seventies. So I I'm wondering then, yeah, I think actually we could probably say the fourth great awakening if we're to identify it with any concreteness is it begins with the radical movement and then leads into the growth of, you know, you know, the, the, the sort of rebirth of Christianity uh, or Christian um, piety, yeah, yeah, the, uh, pietism in the eighties. Yeah, well, yeah. To me, what's interesting about it is, is there's these like different strands that then separate yeah. into further strands. Like there's right. There's, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm kind of wrestling with how exactly to articulate this, but so you've got, it is harder the closer we get to the present, isn't yeah, it? It's, yeah. it's a lot and, harder to like, yeah. Cause like, but I think that that's what happened with all of the awakenings, namely after the second one, where you start to see the splintering effect a lot more. And I'm thinking that's the American Christian character at work right and, there. And in general, I, it's probably inevitable that a country as large and as diverse in all the meanings of the word diverse as ours, right. that as time goes on, yeah. it's going to get more and more complicated. Right. There's going to be even right. when there's a great social movement that you can kind of point to. It's going to be more multifaceted mm-hmm. than it might have been a century previously in another mass movement. Right. So um, so so when I look at the this idea of the fourth great awakening, it seems to me like you've got. The beginning of an awakening, I know that um, Strauss and Howe, right, in in generational theory would would characterize the 60s and 70s as an awakening in their use of the term, which basically means like a, a spiritual awakening. And they, I think, pointed um, initially to the counterculture, right, and the, the sort of like the, the hippie movement, the psychedelic stuff, whatever, as like part of it. And then eventually some of that branches off into the more kind of like Jim Jonesy religious mm-hmm. left zealotry stuff and, and the Jesus mm-hmm. movement and all that kind of stuff. And yet at the same time, it also kind of kicks off in, in a way in reaction sparks the kind of religious right movement that really peaks more in the eighties and nineties and early aughts as, as in part as a reaction against the, the counterculture exactly. awakening, but also the, the Christian left zealotry of the sixties and seventies. Because there's a lot of that too, exactly. And I mean, I, I, I would call Martin Luther King a religious zealot in the best sense of the word. I think he was, you know, obviously he he weaponized his own religious, I don't want to call him a zealot. I feel bad saying that, but like, I feel like he, he, he basically weaponized his own belief into, you know, productive good in that sense, if you know what I mean. And I think that, but yeah, I think there was a reaction to that. And one can, you know, start to like, point fingers and say, aha, that's proof of racism or whatever. But I think a better point to make is what you're saying, which is that there's going to always be a reaction to one strand of Christianity, especially if it follows along the civil religious civil war lines. And I'm wonder, I mean, that, but that's the thing that's interesting to me is that there was this element of strategy on the part of Republicans 
uh, globbing onto the GOP specifically globbing onto uh, the um, onto the growth of the religious movement in the South that was in reaction against the counterculture. Like they saw an opening and they took it. And that's why I think people associate that kind of Christianity with the right wing. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's any guarantee that one side of the civil religious civil war will have a monopoly on Christianity. It just depends on who decides to take it. And that's sort of what I, I ultimately was playing around with that idea in the essay at the end where I was saying, okay, let's just say this is a fifth grade awakening. Let's pretend that this, that 2020 was the beginning of it, that everything that happened in 2020 was the beginning of it. You have the personality called the Donald Trump. That isn't that surprising because we've seen it so many times before. And then you have this more amorphous version of a religious revival happening on the left, seeming the supposedly secular left, where does this go? Does the GOP continue to try to, you know, grip as hard as it can onto its, you know, Christian base? Or, and this is actually something that I think I mentioned to you in a in a text that I was like, I feel like I should have hit this home more. I feel like it should become like that. I, I feel like that this this left oriented social justice movement should embrace its spiritual roots and just go full Christian if it, if, if it wants to sustain itself, because I don't think as we've seen in history, secular mass movements don't sustain themselves. Like you said, they go in waves, you know, not just secular ones, all mass movements go in waves. But I think that if you're able to sublimate that into a pre-existing belief structure, you're going to have an easier time like dealing with the possible self-contradictions Exterior, uh, external criticism and so forth, and and not like create more conflict than you need to. Like if it becomes an explicitly religious project, this social justice project, I think that reacting for it or against it will become far less toxic. Maybe I'm being naive. I don't know, but I just get this sense that I think it would do everybody some good if there was a little more honesty in the room about what is and is not religious right now. If that makes sense. Right. So, you know, you're basically raising it, the question. I don't, I don't think you're saying definitively, no. um, you know, just raising it as like a, hey, here's an interesting kind of thing that might, might be a thing. This, this question yeah. of, does this constitute a fifth grade awakening? What, what's going on right yeah. now with the really, the really zealous social justice stuff, which obviously has a lot of cult-like elements to it. And obviously Mm -hmm. also has a lot of um, maybe less culty, but still explicitly religious elements as well. Yes. Spiritual, I would call it. Yeah. And and might it not be better for everybody both in and outside the movement if they, if they diverted more in a, in an actually Mm -hmm. religious sense, rather than having this kind of sublimated religiosity and cultiness in the political realm. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. That's an interesting question. Because it, it, it talks, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is that when it doesn't have, an overt name to it when it, because, you know, we have all these different terms for it. Wokies, Wokistani, social justice, uh, critical race theory, anti-racism, you know, gender studies. I mean, you have all these different aspects of it um, that I honestly think just makes it more confusing for everybody. And therefore that confusion is going to create more um, what's the way that can, uh, I, I guess, sort of disruption. Like I, I think that we could say, by the way, that the Trump personality cult is another aspect of this fifth grade awakening, the splinter effect happening that is along the civil religious civil war lines. 
But the thing is, that's why I'm not too worried about the Trump cult, because it's a personality cult. It dies with the man. And that man is old and fat and he's not healthy and he's not going to be alive. And he's probably not going to recruit anyone to be any of his followers who isn't already like he's he's exactly maxed out his appeal. There's there's nobody who doesn't already love him who's suddenly going to change their mind. You know, going forward, right. you know, like, oh, you know, I hated Trump for five years, but now I suddenly saw the light. He's great. Yeah, you know? it's not going to happen. Yeah, and that's not to. Yeah, and that's not to say. I mean, again, with with the awakenings, there's a lot of different threads that splinter outward, and it's always possible. And this actually does worry me. I mean, I've stated this publicly many times that, you know, just because you know, to, and I've been directing this at my more progressive friends. I say, look, Trump is gone, but he was a preview, like that, like somebody way worse than him can and probably will come along. And they might either just be another personality cult, which is dangerous enough on its own, but it also isn't sustainable in a scary way if there's no ideological concern behind it. And say what you want about Donald Trump. He had no ideological concerns. I mean, he might've made it seem like he did, but I don't think he did for a second. And I'm thinking if you're able to create a a well-oiled machine of a reactionary movement against a social justice left, which I'm sure there are people listening who might be like, good, there should be. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Because then we're entering Weimar territory. Then we're entering the territory of, okay, so people who are the vast majority of people who are in the middle, who are just like, I don't want anything to do with all this craziness will then eventually turn to the reactionary side who promises with a lot of nice, flowy, beautiful language to get rid of this chaotic craziness on the left that hasn't crystallized into something it should crystallize into. So I guess maybe that's sort of what I'm saying when I say I want this social justice movement to become more explicitly Christian or religious in some way. I want it to be admitted because if it's not, then it's something that can be reacted against without any concrete uh, like formation or structure. Because when you have that, you're more likely to start going after people who have nothing to do with the movement or who have nothing to do with anything crazy. And then you start to get some really ugly situations going on. Then you start to get the troubles, if you will, in America. I'm just, I I guess what I'm saying is I see more dark paths out of this current awakening that we're in than I see light paths. So it's possible that in a way, kind of if you could divert a lot of the woke hysteria into a more kind of formalized religion in a way that might moderate it, or at the very least kind of like divert it into a cul-de-sac where, where it's less totalitarian in a way, because it's like specifically in the reservation labeled religion or church or whatever. Right. And, And well, yeah, like, you know how you get those really cringy Christian movies, like God is not dead or whatever, which they have like four of them now or something. I don't even know. Like, like, you know, people complain about how, you know, Hollywood is going woke and going broke. And I'm like, the bigger issue is how they're kowtowing to a certain country overseas all the time. But uh, they like, yeah, like I'd rather have, mo- I'd rather have a, like more distinct and clear categories of art, for example. I don't want to, I, I, cause I, I think it's not controversial to say nobody, the average moviegoer does not like being preached to. And that's pretty much like all that exists right now. For example, just to use movies as an example. Yeah. 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 I mean, just, I'm, I'm so sick of, of identity politics crap being shoehorned into literally every tv show and movie that's come out in recent years 
where even where yeah. it's like woefully out of place i mean you okay yeah if you're making an historical drama about something that happened you know like nat turner's rebellion or you know like okay yeah, fine yeah. like some of that identity politics aspects of it are appropriate there or you're making a movie about the civil rights movement or whatever even there it's like don't we right. have enough of those already um you know do you really if you're someone who genuinely believes like a significant percentage of americans are closet clansmen and nazis or, and whatever do you really think that what's gonna what's gonna solve that problem is we just need to make a few more movies about how racism is bad or we just need to make a few more movies yeah, about exactly. how sexism and, and homophobia are bad like yeah i mean uh, yeah my sort of view on this is like unless your name is jordan peele please stop making identitarian stories because get out is fucking awesome it's a great movie minus the ending i hate the ending but that's a different story <laughs> yeah well i wanted to ask you your your take um and i'm gonna have to bail in a few minutes unfortunately i could probably right. talk oh, to you about okay. this stuff for for another couple hours no problem but um one of the takes on the rise of wokeism that i've really appreciated uh comes from dave smith the the comedian and, and podcaster libertarian right. guy and and his take on it I, I was already kind of thinking down the lines he was but he's really kind of articulated it very well recently which is he calls wokeism um a kind of a corporate and establishment plot where yo oh, i'm a hundred i'm already with him on that because that's exactly what i think yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at where, this point you know the, not that not that the corporate establishment and the political establishment created wokeism you know you you can no. read like james Lindsay's book or something like that to get the where wokeism came from yeah. intellectually but the you know out of all the different um ideologies and academic schools of thought and whatever why did this one get such a spotlight and get put on such a pedestal by the powers that i know be? exactly why yeah. well, I know, I know exactly why you, do do you want to say it or should I say it? (laughs) My answer and probably we're thinking the same thing. Is it divide and rule? Oh yes, it it is that. Um, I, I was going a little more specific, but generally I think actually, no, that's exactly it. Um, what I was thinking was just that, oh, it's because it's utilizing identitarian language and identity itself, which is the biggest and best way to deflect criticism. Yes. Yes. I would, I'd very, I'd very there, much agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, of course, Nike is going to, I mean, this is, that was actually when I've said this before, when the moment I saw Colin Kaepernick become the spokesman for Nike, I was like, Oh, I see what's going on here. It's because they're getting faced with constant criticism of how they run, they still run sweatshops overseas. They treat, you know, you know, brown people like garbage overseas, but Hey, black lives matter. Exactly. Like, it's, it's a very, very cheap way for them to get virtue points without having to actually exactly. sacrifice anything of real value to them. Right. Like it, it, exactly. it costs a wall street investment bank in the grand scheme of things, virtually nothing to like put up a black lives matter logo on their headquarters and on their website, and maybe even to send some of their executives to diversity training just as a virtue signal. It doesn't right. cost them much, whereas, right. you know, like old school class based leftism might be coming for mm-hmm. them to redistribute that wealth. Yeah. And so if they can go, oh, yeah. no, 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 we got a couple black executives now. We put a Black Lives Matter logo. We put a gay pride flag out on, on, on Pride Day or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. We get to keep our right. billions. We get to keep, you know, ripping off the middle class and the working class. There's a lot of they live memes. That's where I've been seeing the they live memes. If like like Pride Parade, the guy takes off his glass or puts on the glasses or whatever it is. And it's just like all these like corporate logos everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 
this is something that I noticed and, and Dave Smith has pointed out a number of other people have pointed out as well, where if you look back to like kind of the heyday of Occupy Wall Street, the left was more focusing on class and they it were was, yeah. you know, very much like, oh, we're coming for you, Wall Street, and we're the 99%. And it was a coalition. Yeah. It was it was beyond just left. It was like, you know, left, right, libertarians. It was socialists. It was general leftist, social Democrats, those kinds of people. I mean, it was everybody. the timing. It's like within one or two years of the end of Occupy that the woke stuff mm-hmm. really gets shoved out front and center hard. And I, I, well, that gets accepted at least because it was always there. I mean, I, I did mine. I minored in cultural studies. So, I mean, it was definitely there, though, again. There was more of a discussion on class in those classes that I took. So, I mean, it, it, we, we did talk about bigotries and so forth, and there was gender studies and African-American studies and all that stuff, but it wasn't like it is now. I mean, I, I avoided it literally by three years. I mean, it's it's remarkable. Actually, in some cases, I uh, I was reading Colleen the American Mind recently. And uh, they were talking about, they were like showing the data and I was like, oh, fuck, no, I avoided that by one year. If I've been in school one more year, like if I've decided ah, I'll get a major in cultural studies, I'll take an extra year. I think I probably would have been like, wait, night and day, what is happening? What, what is, what's happened here? Why are all these kids getting really upset during discussion section? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I was so, in grad yeah. school, um, most of the professors I took and I stayed away from the people who were like the really uh, proto wokesters. This would have been back around like uh-huh. 305 was when I would have been. Sure, yeah. That was they. They were around. Yeah. yeah, but they were all they were all in the cultural studies. Well, department. they were I mean, they were particular all... history professors who I could kind of tell were that way. Now I didn't I didn't fully understand the depth of this stuff at the time, and of course it hadn't blossomed like it has in recent years. No. So all yeah. I knew was more than anything else their classes and their subject matter just sounded boring, right? Because I'd have one professor who's like, I've specialized in 18th century gender identity structures and the deployment of gender. And I'd be like, <laughs> setting aside ideology, that just sounds boring. And someone else would be like more traditional yeah. and be like, hey, we're going to talk about the battles of World War II. I'd be like, that's, I'm down, I'm down. I'm taking that class. <laughs> so I ended up mostly staying away from the really woke professors just out of they sounded really boring and like stuff I didn't care mm-hmm. about. Um, well, it's because they are boring. They speak in double speak. They they have they 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 write the way I talk and run on sentences. Like it's 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 impenetrable but, crap. But it's I even, can tell it's you that even right worse now. Because at least you talk with like understandable words and coherent thoughts and whatever. Their, their <laughs> stuff is I don't make shit up. Yeah, yeah. their stuff is just bizarre <laughs> impen- impenetrable jargon that's you know almost yeah. designed to be like this esoteric magical language that you have to be part of the elect yeah. to understand. Exactly. And that's hence John McWhorter's brilliant term, the elect. I mean, I I will say that the other thing, the other reason I think that there is something to be said for advocating for a a movement towards, you know, just being explicitly spiritual and or Christian for this movement is because a lot of the people in this movement are very much anti-establishment. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people who are advocates of this movement or who are straight up in it. They don't like corporations. They don't like the government and, uh, uh, you know, utilizing this language. I see them mocking it. And it always makes me kind of happy when I see that because I'm like, okay, good. You're not being totally hoodwinked. But do you understand the bind that you've put yourselves in? Like, there, there's, there's only one way out of this. Because if this keeps going only in the civil religious civil war context, which I really think that's what this is. It's just going to incentivize a worse reaction. And, and I don't know what that reaction is going to be. I mean, I threw out some ideas earlier that were 
arguably probably a little melodramatic to make a Weimar comparison, but you know, I, I did a six hour podcast last year that kind of said, Hey, we could go there pretty easily <laughs> based on where we're at. So I don't know. It's in my mind, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's only a few ways out of this for these people, because at the end of the day, a lot of them are just regular people who really care about things like police brutality and so forth. They've misplaced their priorities, but they're not like all lost. You can, you, you know, there are ways out of this for these people. There should be. And I don't like that it's been turned into a corporate, you know, progressive government plot. Yeah. I don't and, like and it. It's been, it makes me it's sad. It's been redirected towards things that are largely symbolic for the most part, rather than yeah. so instead of, instead of like, going into these nuts and bolts police reform things and criminal justice reform things exactly. many of which if not all of which i would probably be totally in support of right like me militarizing too. the cops me and we're on drugs and qualified immunity and a hundred other things instead of that it's well we gotta you know um i don't i don't know get rid of aunt jemima and we got to have yeah. a few more <laughs> you know minority marvel heroes in the movies or you know as if any of that fixes yeah, anything. Or, or, exactly. Oh, let's, yeah. Um, let's have a have a uh, let's have Kamala Harris as vice president, and like she can be as nasty of an authoritarian police status monster as she is, but you know she's a brown skinned female, so she gets a pass. And uh, in fact, if you, in fact if you criticize her for anything, it must be because you're sexist and racist, not because you disagree with her. Policies. Exactly. Well, and as much as I've been really enjoying, I think even Vice promoted this of all places, uh, the conspiracy theories about that woke CIA ad, which the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, wait, this does feel a little op like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it had a, an element to it where I was like, this is so much so over the top that I also, I don't believe this is sincere. Uh, but I think that that is emblematized of, I, I think it's better to assume that incompetence instead of malice most of the time. Um, and in this case, I think maybe the CIA was trying to recruit Gen Z and they're thinking, oh, well, this is what will get them to not think about how we engage in coup d'etats, assassination squads, and so on and so forth that all their professors will tell them yeah. about. We're going to let them know this is a place <laughs> in this agency, we believe. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, to tie it back to the movie industry and all that, um, not all, but I believe most of the MCU films have had some degree mm -hmm. of Pentagon and or CIA involvement in production. So, and no in shit. general, in general, the, the movies that are the most woke in the MCU have had the most involvement. So captain captain Marvel, the military was involved in the production and basically uh, was, was in part using it as a, as an air force commercial for female recruits. Right. And, um, and I remember CIA, that. I oh, believe man. CIA was involved in production of black Panther. Right. And remember one of the side heroes is a CIA agent who's portrayed right. as a good guy. Right. Uh, uh Frodo, oh, sorry, Bilbo, right. Bilbo Baggins. Right? Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, yeah. You know, and I, I think there are people I think there are, there are like lower ranking young people in a place like the CIA that really do believe this crap. And then I think there are the mm -hmm. older, higher ranking people who are using it in part as a recruiting thing and also in part to distract from their crimes. Right. Because, you know, the, the idea that, you know, droning brown kids in Pakistan is fine as long as the right quota of your drone operators are gay or female or trans or black. Right. Um, yeah, it, it's all good. You can torture oh, whoever man. you want as long as yeah. as long as the torturers, you know, check enough diversity boxes, then then it's all good. 
As also known as Zero Dark Thirty. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I did love that. I, I do love that movie, just for the record. I think it's a great movie. But yeah, there is that stank on it, I think, a little bit. But I, I was going to say that uh, I'm asking to you, I think this is probably an obvious question. So maybe I'll just treat it as a rhetorical question. Could it be that the higher ups of the CIA, FBI, NSA, all these agencies are teaming up with Hollywood and other things and just putting on this? This uh, woke facade, perhaps to divide and rule. Yep. Yep. And to, <laughs> to, to inoculate themselves against criticism, you know, people exactly. who normally might yeah. be inclined to complain about the empire and the wars and the CIA and all that. If you can distract them with enough diversity uh, hoopla, then that's a great way to buy yourself cover. Well, um, that makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see how it plays out. Maybe, maybe enough people will start right. to kind of get wise to it. Maybe they're jumping the shark. Cross our fingers. Hopefully, yeah. But, uh, I've I've got to so. I've got to call it a day. Uh, unfortunately, right on, man. But, um, I'll link in the show notes when this episode comes out to your essay, and I'll also, of course, link to your site for uh, History Impossible, your excellent podcast. Perfect. Thanks. Anything else uh, you'd want to want me to link to, or you want to plug? Um, no, just, I mean, uh, I guess my Twitter, I'm trying to get more followers on Twitter. I only have like 300 some, uh, it's, uh, at a R a D E R V O N it's unfortunately history impossible was taken. I guess I'm very, I was kind of confused by that, but you know, there you go. All right. Well, I'll <laughs> throw a link uh, to your Twitter in the show notes too. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, man. All right. It's been great talking to you for sure, man. Talk to you soon. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat 
You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.